0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars. Out here we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn all the way from Australia yes it's the one and only the hard-ons just hard-ons i don't think there's any the at the start anyway i spoke to one of the main members the guitarist rayon to find out more about life love and poetry anyway look this is all very exciting and it was also very early in the morning time difference anyway it's rock and roll anything for a good interview so after several minutes of casual chat to find out more about each other i suppose um we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years of music ray it is going to be now over to you anyway enjoy
1: i think it would have been the beatles um when, when my family first came to Australia, it was 1974, and music wasn't really um, anything other than something that happened in the background. And um, I guess um, just uh, because everyone had heard of the, uh, the Beatles, and we used to see the Beatles um, cartoon on TV on Saturday mornings. Uh, my mother and father bought us uh, the family of Beatles cassette when we first arrived in Australia yes. from Korea. And so it was a Beatles cassette and I loved them and I still loved them. And then um, ABBA became really popular in Australia. So ABBA was my other big love and I still loved them. Um, but my next door neighbor uh, was into uh, Bowie, um, Led Zeppelin uh, and uh kiss and a c d c and bands like that right. And he was uh, five years older than myself, so he made me a, a a kiss cassette um when we were when I was a kid and he was five years older than me so I would have been maybe mm-hmm. um ten or eleven and and he would have been five years older and uh kiss became my favorite band for the next three years or so yeah, so kiss would have been my first um uh love but then in nineteen seventy seven when um god save the queen came out on a seven inch uh with that um very distinctive um uh picture sleeve with the uh the queen with um the writing over her eyes and whatnot yeah um he he bought that record my next door neighbor bought that record and he decided he didn't like it and he he gave it to me and then i heard it and uh, i thought it was uh pretty incredible and um <laughs> Yeah, and so I started listening to um, punk music, um, but only what I could get my hands on. And um, uh, the things that I I saw that uh, were considered punk, I had to um, go and find in um, import record shops and and whatnot, you see.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: So it made me go to uh, these uh, import shops in the city. And um, by then, I turned probably... 13 or 14 I was getting older and and um we'd always go to uh record stores after after school excursions and whatnot in the city and um then it opened up a a, a really big world of um uh well punk music and post-punk music uh, you know you you discover all these bands that had come after the initial explosion as well of course like XTC the cure eventually and I remember when Cure first came out I was fascinated with them mm-hmm. um and of course bands like the Buzzcocks were still going at the time but they were starting to change their sound a little bit more and so that was it was incredibly fascinating and that so that that would be that would be a big part of my childhood um you know that period of be- the age between 10 and 16 say you know that 6 year period mm-hmm. that's a hell of a lot of uh uh Discovery in 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 six short years, and it would have been the same for you, I would say, those six yes. years. It is yes. interesting. So the magic years.
0: Yes, and and they are the formative years. I know that when, you know, Lemmy or David Bowie, who were born on the same you know same year, so the same age, obviously, and uh, and whenever they got asked, you know, what their main main musical influence were, they used to always say, you know, it was Little Richard, and then it was like Elvis, maybe Cochran, and all those, and and as Lemmy always said, you know, you. You know that music at that age is going to be the music that's going to be embedded in your DNA for the rest of your life. You know, you might like other yeah. things that come along, and you kind of try and keep curious and want to hear the latest, whatever. But you can't. You, you know, that person that you were then. You know, you're so young. I mean, when you're that age, you think you know it all. But when you look at sixteen or sixteen-year-old now. 16 year olds now they just look so tiny don't they and they look so innocent you know at the same time you know as, as well as putting that street you know trying to be street yes yeah. but it is but you you know that music that you listen to constantly and you sort of want to sing to every song because because it was funny you mentioned ABBA because I remember we had an ABBA record I think it was Arrival and you know used to play it a lot because dynamically some of the songs are extraordinary you know I think they're just kind of perfection well they are kind of pop perfection aren't they and my parents also had an album Because we were very sort of working class, so we didn't have a lot of records. And when my parents got married, um, you know, they had to sell all their possessions and sort of get rid of everything, basically, to sort of cobble some money together. Because people, especially working class people, never used to have debt. You know, they would just work really hard, save up. And then buy whatever they needed, you know, even almost to the point where the, a house, you know, and, you know, they didn't have, you know, hot water or central heating or inside toilet, you know, it was all kind of quite that kind of lifestyle. So I remember they, they didn't have a record player in the 60s, but we bought one in the 70s, or they did, and they bought a few records in, which was kind of like, they were quite cheesy, really, but they did have one, which was The Carpenters, which I played constantly, because I thought the lyrics of The Carpenters were stunning, you know, and I think they still are. I think you you can't be you know if you like joy division and the smiths you know you love the carpenters you know i mean obviously it's just the, the, they're the same kind of sentiment but i had an older brother who was into you know he was into prog rock so i was obsessed with prog rock at the age of like 10 to 16 and um but also he had deep purple and black sabbath so i sort of consumed those two records as well
1: well, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a bit of a Carpenters fan and I can understand what you're saying about the Carpenters because if you hear a song like um, Yesterday Once More, <laughs> there's this really intense, concentrated bit of pathos and emotion in, in a handful of words, you know, in, in, in a song like that, you know. Um, you know, the recalling of something that happened when you were younger and as, as opposed to, as it applies now and that kind of stuff, it's, uh well, it's very, it's very emotional and powerful music. Uh, and you can't deny how good the songs are.
0: No. You know, I, I still mean, love them. Oh, God, when you hear the song, you know, I Say Goodbye to Love, No One Seems to Care If I Should Live or Die, I think, you know, you kind of, who wrote that? You know, The Carpenters. I don't know if they wrote all their songs, actually. But then, you know, Morrissey or Ian Curtis, I mean, they you know that it's it's kind of quite extraordinary you know and you know when you're young and you're listening and singing along to these songs you forget you know what you're kind of completely meaning and then later on in life you think oh jesus that was
1: quite yeah so uh, i i do love ever because of uh the ability to grab one moment in a song and make it soar through your whole uh, uh, uh soul you know um for example knowing me knowing you uh from the arrival record you can't deny that that's a bad song, you know. No. Um, S.O.S. You can't deny that that's a bad song. It they do grab a moment in a song where they change notes and go to another part of the song, and that little change just dramatically pushes you for another emotional window, and it's you know it's it's quite magical music. And I I can understand why people don't like them because are very polished, but uh, that was. By design. I mean, if you listen to their songs, they don't have um, crash symbols. um You know, because rock music is a series of explosions, isn't it? Like Led Zeppelin, you know, the chorus is coming up, drum roll and crash. Yes. They didn't have crash symbols so much. They <laughs> had the hi hat going all the way through it. So the driving emotional force in that band were the soaring vocals and then the note change. It wasn't the beefy drumming or or ridiculous amount of lead guitar or anything like that. They were just like just like little side things, you know, like the little guitar lick in um uh knowing me, knowing you, you know. Uh, they they were they were there to augment what was already happening powerfully with the vocals and, and the, the key change and the note change. So really, really good songwriting. I yes. love them.
0: Well, I know a few friends who are musicians, and whenever they used to try and play ABBA songs, they they came away saying, actually, they're really complicated. They're really, you know, they're quite technical. They're not, they're not like one of those um, bands that you could sort of just go, oh yeah, that would be quite easy to cover. It's like you you need to be quite a really good musician, and where and they take you to places that you you know are quite technical, for you need. You need to be a quite you know, accomplished person that, who understands right. music. So, um, so I think actually a lot of musicians kind of respect other even more when they try and play their music. Yeah. Um, no, I have to say one of the songs I love is "Eagle." Is it "Eagle"? Where it really? Oh sp- yeah. God, it's so dramatic. You know the way that changes. Really. Abba. It is a classic. Actually, it's a classic. So. Uh, <laughs> so look. So when did um, you know? Because during that period, the eighties in in the UK, you know, we had um, we had. Yeah, so 79, you know, Thatcher gets in power in this country. You know, so suddenly we have a very conservative government for the next million years. Well, it's quite a long time. And then you have um, a huge amount of unemployment in this sort of 80s, especially the early 80s. So, you know, we had the Falkland War, then we had the miners' crisis uh, crisis, and lots of strikes and lots of picketing and violence. And and so things are going wrong uh, badly. So, you know, and then a lot of people become very... uh, And and in the uk a lot of people go unemployed because there's not much job so a lot of the bands that i've interviewed during this period um, spent about 12 months 22 yeah, years kind of unemployed so what was it like during the 80s in the early 80s for you guys in australia or sydney
1: um in in the, in the 80s there was um uh, far as i could tell it was um We still had the remnants of um, white Australia policy that was always in the background there. Australia was a really funny place. Um, uh, We had this uh, idea that uh, Australia was um, uh, the lucky country, you know. Um, But really, uh, I didn't really... See any optimism until the Labor government came into power with Bob Hawke, and that was, uh, that was the early 80s. And when he came into power in the early 80s, this um, left-wing, um, uh, the, you know, our Labor Party, things started changing. So there was more um, uh, uh, reconciliatory recon- talk with um, the Indigenous population. There was more concentration of issues that affect um, non-English-speaking immigrants, for example. Uh, There was more uh, things concentrating on um, workers' rights, for example. And there was all this really weird optimism that I hadn't seen. um, And that was the early 80s for me. And the early 80s in Australia was when... um, I noticed that the Australian government started pushing the idea of multiculturalism. Do you use that term in the UK, multiculturalism? Yeah. Because we all accepted that Australia was a multiracial country, but we never mentioned that term multicultural until the Labor government started talking about it as if, and then they started saying, suggesting that the word assimilation is quite, Wrong and quite possibly racist, because our simulation suggests that um, you need to become uh, like the dominant um, people in a society to fit in. Um, so multiculturalism replaced that thought, and the Labor government was a big part of pushing that idea forth. So multiculturalism would suggest that you can we are going to embrace the difference what now we call, the word that we would use now is diversity. Mm-hmm. That diversity and multiculturalism is a dynamic um, power and force that you could use to make society better, not only society but also the economic side of the society uh, and everything that pervades through society was going to be better if we embraced multiculturalism and went off saying what, what can we embrace from all these different people? And it's not just about um, uh, food, but to be quite honest, food was a really big thing. Because I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, "Look, um, I had a cultural experience yesterday. I went to a, a Malaysian restaurant." You know, but but in reality, it wasn't anything to scoff at. Because if because if you look at the map of Australia, it is right on the bottom of um, Asia, so you would think that we'd have this porous exchange of cultural ideas with Asia. Right. And it's true. And if you look at uh, Britain, Britain colonized uh, places like they, they went to places like Malaysia and uh, India and so, and Pakistan. So you would expect people from those areas to migrate to the UK and bring some things with them, which surely could be a good thing, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, to make society more dynamic because uh, in the modern world, I mean, everything changes. And in the modern world, can't we learn from other cultures and and um, learn from each other? One of the things we're going to learn from each other is acceptance of tolerance as an idea, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, um, the early 80s was uh, a period of uh, real optimism and uh, the Labor government, really, really pushed this notion as a cool thing. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, it was like, hey, listen, I tried Indonesian food yesterday. It's like, well, good for you. And if that was a little gateway to learning about other people and and appreciating this diversity as a dynamic force in society, then I thought it was a good thing. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense. It's quite interesting because recently we... We've got a filmmaker in this country called Adam Curtis and he's just done a six-part series about uh, the modern world, you know, including Brexit and Trump and, you know, talks a lot about, you know, Britain and our problems, our, the, the, the way that, you know, we've had this kind of relationship with the rest of the world in the sense of, you know, as you mentioned, colonising other countries but then having such problems when a lot of those people come to the UK and how they get treated and, um, and why there's this massive fear, you know, he's, he's looking at what's going on for a lot of people. It's, it's quite, I don't know if you could get it in Australia, I'll just send you the link because it kind of, it, you know, it's like six episodes. I think they were all on over an hour long, but yeah. I've, I've already
1: been sent, I've already been sent links to all the Adam Curtis stuff.
0: <laughs> it's kind of, you know, but he doesn't just do the UK, he does the whole kind of world and he pulls all these. Yeah, companies. the Trumpism and all that stuff. Yeah, you know what is going on. So you know, you do have this kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, the you know, a bit like I suppose America with the in, you know the yeah the, the sort of yeah who who was kind of living there before everyone turned up, and then sort of what they did, and and sort of the UK having these kind of great issues about the Commonwealth, and then you know what what comes at the end is that we you know we sort of get very fearful, and everyone once well we're also what's quite interesting is kind of the myths of that happen around the uk this idea of sort of the conserve the, you know nature isn't it a lot to do with old england you know the idea of you know the yeah the the sort of the the times when everything was much easier no, the um, arcadia i suppose it's to do a lot to do with these kind of the idea that we had all these traditions that actually in reality didn't exist but we think they existed you know this kind of idea of folk music and folk traditions and all these kind of lovely ways that everything was much simpler and much kinder back in those days but actually that's all a kind of a false narrative so we're building these kind of weird narratives that somehow taps into the present day where we now look back and go oh that was a golden time but actually when people even reminisce about in the in the uk like the 80s or the 70s or the 60s you know actually it was quite grim especially in the 80s for me growing up because it was it was quite a grim time in the UK but you know people quickly think oh that was fantastic it was all much nicer and I'm always thinking well actually there was this this and this happened and it's like oh yeah actually you've just spoiled it all David shut up but you know we still have this idea of, of a similar country so we had a prime minister who loved that image of you know the the village, society, you know, the village green where people were playing cricket and everything was lovely yeah. and white and it was all so innocent and, you know, women knew their place, men knew what they were doing. There was the blacksmith, the local pub, the butcher, you know, it was all rather, you know, this kind of idea, you know, I, so when, yeah. when they come to these big moments of voting, you know, politicians tap into that idea. And say you know you know we've lost all this you know what have we done here you know we've allowed all this to happen and you're saying yeah but we we did all this stuff to sort of other countries and completely copped up so much stuff around the world while making ourselves very rich and our our history is kind of quite embarrassing isn't it and when it gets spoken about as it does now People go, oh God, you know, that's just the loony left, you know, just kind of you know, political correctness gone mad. And it's like, well, it's not really (laughs) these are kind of facts, aren't they? You know, let's face what happened to India or what happened to Africa, you know. Concentrate, you know, I think we developed the first concentration camp ever in in sort of Africa. So it's like, oh God, how many people you know, between the British and the Belgians, we we made quite a you know, a bit of a disaster in certain places in Africa, which you know we didn't know about until quite recently and then dear old adam curtis makes these films and you think oh, that's a in bit places weird. like congo yeah. the democratic republic of
1: congo and places like that yeah you or, know
0: and and you get rid of you know the, they there's a system that's happening and everyone seems vaguely okay with it and then sort of we get involved and then this mad dictator comes in and he kills all these people and then there's that that happens and you just think jesus that's too much too much mate. Yeah. so um, anyway God, Adam Curtis, check him out. Anyway, look. So <laughs> the eighty, 80- yes. So going back to the, uh, the to the so for me, because at that age, kind mean, of you had that punk period and then post punk period, and you know, like there was bands like Wire and Gang of Four and the Nightingales and and all that kind of scratchy stuff. And then it was eighty three was a big moment in the UK because the Smiths appeared duh, 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 and the, and sort of eighty three to eighty seven. You know, there was a lot of kind of alternative, you know, the alternative charts were quite a big thing and jingly jangly pop, which is a bit of a, you know, cheap term, but I'm going to use it, um, sort of really appears. And there's a there's a kind of a game changing moment because a lot of people I interview, they mention, you know, Hugh was really influential in the 80s. There's Orange, Orange Juice from Scotland. Then there's the Smiths, the June Brides and the Go Twins all the way from Australia, everyone loved the go-betweens, didn't they? So there's a kind of a bit of a shift. And as I said, politically, we were very divided. You know, you had the Tory government and you had that kind of mainstream sound. you Phil Collins, Sade, Simply Red, you know, Duran Duran, Spandau Bally, you know, massive glossy videos and everyone was living it large. And they had it all, big shoulder pads, big hair. And then the indie kids who felt like still unemployed, because we had unemployment, we had the Job Seekers Alliance, Enterprise Alliance schemes, all these kind of things where, you know, they tried to massage the figures by saying, oh, go on the Enterprise Alliance scheme. You don't really get counted as being unemployed now. So there was a lot of kind of, Bands that I've interviewed who were just unemployed for years, and they because of that yeah. they thought, well, it wasn't a bad thing. And then it was there was no real stigma in a way because it was almost like that, oh, well, we'll just be unemployed for a few years, drink, smoke, yeah. play, play in a band, which is slightly simplified. But there was an awful lot of 80s bands from the UK who had that kind of narrative, so um, that was that was it. So, what was it? So, you were sort of saying it sounded much more optimistic in Australia at this stage,
1: that's right. Um, there. I found that um the late, the early 80s was a huge period of um national optimism from my point of view because of uh as I said the push of uh, multiculturalism as a force in in Australian society because unlike um Australian society it never worked out what it was meant to be because we have all these cliches like the land of the fair go. Obviously, we're not a land of the fair go because um, if you're indigenous, for example, it's terrible. Um, but once once the Labor government started pushing the idea that um, multiculturalism was a good force, then yeah, there wasn't, you know, speaking from my personal point of view, Uh, That was because I I entered university in 1984 and I started studying social work. So all the people that I was hanging out with were obviously very far left wing um, idealists, really. Um, And so that was the idea that was in my head about Australia, the the idea of um, an egalitarian society based on diversity, for example. And the government did bring in a lot of ideas. What they did in 1983 or 84 was also introduce a TV station called uh, Channel O, uh, Channel Zero. Um, Now it's called SBS. And that is the channel that had um, shows from all over the world. And they did news stories about um, people in Australia from different backgrounds, whether it be Aboriginal or uh asian or from wherever they are from non-english speaking backgrounds so for me it was a a time of optimism right you know that
0: yeah we we had we had rock against racism and the red wedge movement which was in the mid 80s where you know you had people like i don't know jimmy somerville you know um Paul Weller, Billy Bragg, you know, all these, you know, ranting. We, we, we had a lot of ranting poets, you know, wanting yeah. to bring, you know, wanting to galvanise the youth to vote against the Conservatives. And everyone thought, can, can music change politics?
1: Yeah, I remember that. And I also remember um, the poll tax riots in the UK the tax, right so yes the 80s you
0: know when I'm thinking about it more <laughs> the music was great but you know it was kind of quite you know it was quite kind of grim but things you know then I think it was like the effect of this that period yeah. kind of has a huge influence then on on the sort of Tony Blair years but let's not go there quite yet so so yes because on a very simplistic level you know we sort of there's, there's bands like Radio Birdman There's obviously the Saints who, you know, we start to know about. And then obviously bands like the Go-Betweens appear as well. And the Triffids. So there was this kind of like, oh, yes, the the Australian sort of scene. And John Peel is our, you know, the gatekeeper. You know, the UK had these gatekeepers. You know, we had John Peel. who was like, go to, he's going to be playing the current stuff. And it's going to be all over the shop, all over the world. You know, from the Bundu boys to, you know, like, Napalm Death to you know right folk folk music from Bulgaria you know he just chucks a right. lot in and that's where I obviously hear you know Girl in a Sweater so yes and then we had the three music papers weeklies as well you know Americans always go my God you have three weekly music papers you know we have a monthly music. magazine uh, yeah.
1: You know, yeah, NME, uh, Melody Maker and Sounds.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, so they're going to fill up content, aren't they? You know, because they need it. Yeah. So, you know, people are going to get that. And also, as you know, the UK is tiny, isn't it? It's really tiny. And every little yeah. city in every town has a venue, an alternative night. So you can almost yeah. do a tour, you know, five dates is almost a tour. And you just get in your transit van and drive drive around the country.
1: You know, Australia um, wasn't like that at all. We, we, all the places were very, very separate, um, long distances. For example, I told you that uh, the early 80s was a period of optimism for me personally, but I lived in Sydney. Um, people in um, Queensland, for example, had um, a far right-wing government to contend with with all sorts of really terrible um, right-wing laws that were... Um, they, the police had power to arrest uh, people very easily. Um, they had a corrupt um, pri- uh, premier, Jobyaki Peterson, uh, this uh, um, South African expat um, who um, really um, ruled with an iron fist. And he was a brutal, brutal, racist, corrupt man. And, um, you know, the, there was a lot of really great music coming from Queensland. And a lot of it was because uh, of the championing of this music from a radio station there called 4 Z. Who were um, a community radio that were always fighting against um, the right-wing government, and I remember when uh, we put out "Girl in the Sweater," you know, the the cover was um, um, had to be censored in Queensland, of all places, because the police would go there and confiscate the records based on a very subjective view of uh, what was uh, um, offensive or not. So, because of the distance of um, of the country and pre-internet days, we just had these inkling of what Queensland and places like that were like. But um, it wasn't until we started touring and getting our records out to these places and it really hit me what those places were like, how how um, brutally right wing, um, for example, Queensland were. And I felt sorry for some of the, um, the music fans that had to endure, um, all sorts of um censorship and things like that from the Queensland government for example
0: yes well that's quite grim so at this stage that you were at university did you you sort of join the band don't you I, I joined the
1: band in uh 1982 right at the beginning I was in uh I was still in high school and uh we spent 82 and 83 uh when I was they were both high school years for me um spend all that time uh those two years watching bands we would go and watch bands every weekend and we would play parties and school dances and things like that but we never we we try to get a show at um when i when I was in uh year twelve which is the final year of high school before university when i was uh um I turned eighteen and i I asked uh, a friend of mine hey do you reckon we could play there and he said um um come back when uh the youngest one uh turns eighteen because they they're going to um you know make sure that uh, people that are on stage have to be over um eighteen, and so the youngest one was Blackie, the guitar player, so when he turned eighteen, we got to play at that pub um the very <laughs> next year but uh, but we'd play for two years earlier in just places that were not um alcohol settings you see like at uh school dances. Uh, church halls, you know, big gatherings and community halls and things like that. Uh, but they weren't to be mocked because, you know, there'd be a lot of young kids there dancing and stuff like that. So it was a good um, – and you'd be playing with other bands and stuff. So It was a good um, learning ground, I guess, before we actually played pubs to people who are over 18. Yes. Um, so we we ended up being the youngest people in the pub, the youngest pe- person being our guitar player who was 18 who just turned 18 and we were playing. So we were the youngest people there. And again, we got good really quickly from there because um, there were so many pubs to play. And now that with the doors to the pubs were open for us to play, we just kept on playing every weekend, maybe three or four times a week. Yes. And that was my first year of university. So did you,
0: I mean, was the bass the, the instrument, your go-to instrument at that stage? How come you sort of found yourself?
1: Uh, well, when, when um, I was at school with the guys, uh, I was 15 and the drummer was 15 and the guitar player Blackie was uh, 14, I um, I noticed that they were having a, a, a band. Uh, they had a band and they would let me hear their demo cassettes and stuff like that. And I thought, I'd like to play in a band. I was quite jealous of them. And uh, they, they didn't really have a bass player. They had a guy who... It was kind of like the bass player, but the the idea that I got was that he wasn't really fitting in because he was um, he was more or less into more like things like Led Zeppelin, Ted Nugent, um, uh, the hard rock stuff, and the other two guys were into Suzanne the Banshees, um, The Cure, uh, The Damned, The Stooges, and things like that. And that's what I like. And they they said, oh, we well, we're, we're kind of um, not sure how Peter, that was a bass player at the time, is fitting in because he doesn't really like punk. And then that gave me the idea. Uh, next time I saw him, I said, oh, I bought a bass. They're like, oh, did you now? <laughs> and I just put that idea. Yeah, you go away and think about it for a while. And I didn't know how to play. But then within a couple of weeks, they said, um, listen, uh, do you know how to play your bass yet? And I said, no, I don't. So that's okay. Can you want to join our band? And I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the band just because <laughs> I had a bass and they wanted to, it was little things like my music taste. that was more in tune with them that asked me to, and, but I knew that they would were looking for a bass player that would fit in and I fit in, but I didn't have a bass. So I went and bought a bass. Yeah. So I, so I didn't want to play bass I wanted to play guitar but I ended up playing the bass
0: I know that um dear old Lemmy he sort of just got a guitar because he saw somebody at school who was walking around with one and all these girls were sort of following this person so he thought god that's that's it I'm going to get a guitar and it worked and then You know, he wasn't that great at the guitar or rhythm guitar. But then, you know, the Hawkwind story was that he turned up and and the bassist hadn't turned up and the gear was there, so he started doing it. And they said, "Well, you're in Hawkwind." And then, obviously, the rest is history. So you've obviously the the, people come to the bass in quite a strange way, isn't it? Really?
1: Yeah, I for the first I reckon five or six years of playing in the hard-ons, I I never felt comfortable with the bass at all. I didn't feel comfortable being a musician. But I really enjoyed playing in the band with these guys and the songs are really great. And they would encourage me to write songs and stuff like that. But I did all the artwork for them as well. So conceptually, I came up with a lot of ideas. And a lot of the ideas that I came up with were based on, um, I guess, deliberately uh, op- uh, offensive humor. Um, Just to see how far um people get offended and things like that i i don't think a band like us could um come around nowadays and get away with what we did but we just i mean we were teenagers and we wanted to come up with far out concepts so the from the get-go the band's name suggested that we weren't worried about becoming famous or popular and so one of the things that we really enjoyed about being in the band was that you have um, you have freedom, you know, as opposed to being worried about how to make your band work and suc- be successful. But we didn't have that issue. So we were kind of left to the, our own devices to do what we wanted to do. And I think that, was, uh, that worked for us, worked for our band. And uh, a few people said, but your songs are very catchy. Maybe you would have been a bit more popular if you had a different band name. And the person who suggested that we as we're getting more and more and more popular that we changed the band's name. And then we would up the tempo of our popularity was Rob Younger uh, from Radio Birdman because he produced Girl in the Sweater. Did you know? No. Yeah. Okay. So the singer from Radio Birdman, who was our friend produced that single. Um I, I'd, I'd met him a few times from going record shopping and stuff like that in high school. So I, I would always see him and bump into him and ask him lots of stupid questions as a teenager. And then when we were releasing Girl in a Sweater, we were going to record Girl in a Sweater, we went and asked Rob to produce it and he did it. And he said, look, these are are really catchy songs and you have the potential to become more popular than what you are now. You should think about changing the name of your band because at the moment, that's going to limit the level of your popularity. And we said, no, we'll just keep on going. And then years and years and years later, maybe 10 years later, Rob came up and said, I was wrong. It didn't really hamper you at all. You just kept on going. And then, you know, so it, it, it didn't hamper us. I mean, I a mean, few people said, uh, you know, maybe you would have been more popular if you did change your name at that stage. but who's to know? I mean, the name of the band got us attention as well, so who knows? I mean, it doesn't really matter now, does it?
0: No, <laughs> I don't know. It's a funny one. You either, you know, I think from doing this show, you, you're either going to be you too and sort of become a global brand, but most yes. bands don't, do they? You know, most bands, what I've found doing the show is that most bands have a five year narrative, especially the UK. You know, you get together, you spend 12 months talking yes. about. And you get a single and, you know, John Peel gives it a play. You get the John Peel session. You play four tracks with Dale Griffith, who was in Mot the Hoople. You get the first right. album. Things are going well. You do the little tour. You know, you might get a little bit more of a tour around Europe. And if you're lucky, you go to America, though, that often is horrible experience for most people. And you yeah. do the second album. And then by then, you know, the band hate each other and you've made no yeah. money. And you just think, yeah. oh, you know, I've spent five years of my life doing this. And that and then so it doesn't really, you know, in a way, I think if most people say that's gonna be it, they yeah. would just kind of enjoy it more. Whereas actually you're yeah. a bit stuck because no one quite knows how to manage it. And you know, you look at, yeah. you know, you two and you think, well, they managed it and they weren't that great to begin with, but somehow yeah. but there's not many people who are gonna be you two, so it's like No, no that's right. <laughs> that's right. So you might as well just enjoy the ride because as as you know, you know, most bands end in tears, like the go between the story is quite like yeah. bloody hell. Yeah. That's a bit rough, mate, you know. So I wouldn't, yeah. the, the worrying about what the name of the band is is kind of irrelevant when you're trying to sack members of the band because you don't like them. Anymore. Um, <laughs> That's right. It's a, it's a murky story, isn't it, really? So, yeah, so, yeah. So, so, yes, so musically, you always write very catchy songs. This is, you know, right. like kind like of surf punk, really, wasn't it? Which is kind of an obvious thing to say, but, you know, they weren't grinding, they weren't difficult, I mean, they weren't, in that sense of like trying to be offensive, like, I don't know, Steve Albini and Big Black or something like this. It was always
1: very- No, but we all really enjoyed really abrasive music. I mean, one of my all-time favorite bands is um, Discharge, for example. So we love really abrasive music, um, uh, but we we really love pop music. Uh, that's That was kind of, and this is what I meant by Kiss and ABBA and all those Beatles and all those bands. They, the idea of melody, is really, really, uh, sub, um, uh, really, um, seductive. You know, uh, I, I really wanted to play in a melodic band. Um, the heroes, I guess, would have been the Buzzcocks, um, the Ramones, bands like that that would graft. You know that driving punk rhythm with really, really good melodies uh, and harmonizing and that kind of stuff. They were our heroes. You know, the idea of meeting the two worlds and uh, we thought that's, that was what, what punk was, you know, the meeting of um, really buzzsaw-style driving rhythms with melody. Buzzcocks, yes. X-Ray Specs, you know, um, the Damned, um, even Sex Pistols, you know, they they had melody, you know. So well, that's it, what we thought it was.
0: Well, the, the Sex Pistols, when you listen to it now, it's very. I always thought it sounded a bit like a combination of Stooges meets the monkeys. I mean, they're really just kind of very good pop. Well,
1: yeah. Well, Captain Sensible said that he thought um, Sex Pistols sounded like Anarchy in the UK sounded like bad company as sung by Steptoe and Son.
0: yes well i suppose the other band that really had a massive influence in the 80s was huskadoo and i mean they were just they were just they were great driving records but they were also very nice to you know hum along to and tap your toe wasn't it 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 wasn't
1: yeah well when when we were being signed to um waterfront records which was the record that girl in a sweater was on that was the first record we did with our record label uh waterfront records the guy who signed us up chris He um, came to our show, we were friends from, he had worked in record stores and whatnot, so we knew him really well. And we told him we had a band and he really liked, he came and saw us a few times and he decided to sign us up. And he he said, you know, what band uh, you guys remind me of is uh, a band called Huskadoo. They have incredible sonic velocity, but they're such good songwriters. Uh, I think if you got your act together, you could be as good as them. And we just thought, well, we already like Husqutu, but we didn't see that we were like them. But we realised, okay, we understand what he's talking about. You know, the the juxtaposition of um, sonic velocity and power, just sheer brutal power with Molot um, melod- Melody, and uh, we thought. That was um, kind of like a blueprint for our music as well. Because, you know, we ended up playing a lot of heavy metal and grind and stuff like that as well on some of our records.
0: Yes. And, and so you must have, things must have shifted gear as the 80s progressed, because then suddenly you, you're sort of bringing out a few singles and then you, you start to tour quite constantly and, and also albums start to sort of get released. So did your, did life just, were you a sort of, was it 24-7 you know, being in the band, whether was the, the time of university and post-university, yeah. is sort of a thing of the past.
1: Yeah, well, we all had jobs where we could run away and, and go and play, play in, uh, in, in uh, pubs on tour endlessly and not lose our jobs. We all had really flexible work, but I was still at university and um, the last two years of my university, I didn't have which was 1986 and 87, I didn't have any uh, examinations. I had uh, submissions, you know, writing papers Mm -hmm. and things like that. So you could time them quite well. What you got to do is get the subject and uh, run to the uh, library, borrow all the books before anyone else can borrow them and just write it as hard as possible. As soon as you get time, write the submission, go hard, And hit it, you know, like shock and awe, you know. And then have the submission all typed out and then go on tour. And then in that time, miss all these lectures, miss all these tutorials because, you know, you're leaving on Thursday and then coming back on Tuesday. You missed a few days, but you've missed a few lectures. You missed a few tutorials, but it doesn't matter because you've already got the paper written. And then you hand in the paper when it's due And then you hope like hell that that's enough to get your pass. And that's why I did that for the last two years of university. And then the last year I figured that the paper that I'd written for uh, social theory could, if I rejig the words, I could rewrite that using the same concepts and the same, almost the same wording for another paper, another submission for social policy and administration. So I would go, Hey, I've already written this somewhere else for this for another subject. I just have to rejig it to suit this um, paper paper su- uh, subject matter. So I would do that. So, um, you know, I got away a couple of times like that, um, which didn't mean that I learned anything. But at, by that stage, we were touring so much. My main goal was to pass uh, and get my degree, and. Um, the the what the ironic thing is because I was really, really trying hard to make sure that I didn't even fail by going really hard at the beginning and getting all the library work and reading and typing out of the way and then relaxing and then going on tour, I actually wrote some really decent stuff. So the last final year, I ended up with a, a, a couple of distinctions and a credit. And, I did. I passed quite well. So that was, my last year was actually quite successful and I got my degree and that was when, 1987 was when Vinyl Solution Records in Portobello Road in London had put out um, a, a couple of our records. They put out a record called Worst of the Hard Ons, which in Australia was called um, uh, Hot for Your Love Baby and they, they were putting that out and we had a chance to tour in 87 and I said, I said to the rest of the band members, I would really like to get this degree without being on a plane and worrying about it. They said, we'll wait for you. They waited for me. And then I, I left for Europe with the hard-ons in 1988, um, the university degree. I had to go to the registrar and sign a declaration saying that my degree will come in absentia, which is they roll it in a tube and they mail it to my mother's address. I didn't have to wear a gown and that kind of carry on with the graduation. And I guess at some point, my parents were a little bit disappointed that they didn't have to go to that ceremony because let's face it, you know, um, those rituals when your children are growing up, uh, are memorable and they want to partake it. But, you yeah. know, but in the end, but the other side is that their son was going to Europe to play music that he'd written, you know, so that was good. So I went to Europe and, uh, the first show we did was uh, in um, London at the Sir George Roby, and and I and I and I thought this is probably what I want to do for a long time. I don't know for how long, but this is kind of my life for the foreseeable future. Living in a hotel or someone's floor, driving in a van and playing music, and then coming home, going to band practice, writing songs, and in that time the the work that you're doing is giving you money to pay rent and get your food. And so it's your employment, you know, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like employment because it's what you did when you're at school. <laughs>
0: yes. And at that time, I mean, when you're young and you're able to do that, you know, it, it, it all seems like such a good idea. So when you were, what was it like sort of playing in front of like the British market, you know, the sort of the audience, I mean, um, from the George Roby, did you start touring around the country at that stage
1: yes we did we went to Norwich and played with as I said the Disruptors and I said to the um, Rob who was uh, the manager of um, the we were touring with them uh, that show at Norwich we we're playing by ourselves and Rob said you're headlining you're headlining the uh, uh, Norwich and we said oh so the stupids aren't playing no no um, You know, Ed's going to come along in the band and stuff, but you're you're playing on your own. So is there another band? Yes, there's a band that's on before you. And I said, who's that? Are there a local band called The Disruptors? And I said, I've heard of Disruptors. I've got one of their records. And so I was, it was a bit of a shock, you know, because <laughs> um, that was a pretty famous punk band. So, um, yeah, we did play all around the UK and uh, it was, you know the riverside in Newcastle and things like that. It was it was incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, and we met uh, Captain Sensible from the Dam at a show, and that was incredible. On our day off, I went and saw Squeeze play uh, as some benefit for um, the union. Uh, that was incredible. You know, there was I saw the the, the piano player um, Jules Holland on stage. I could see him. Smoking a cigar or whatever on on stage, just like I saw him in a photograph. I was like, "That's that's um, Jules Holland from UK School. Is that They're playing, they're <laughs> playing, um, they're playing, um, "Up the Junction." I know this song. I've got that at home, and they're on stage right now. I'm Watching, I thought, "Gee whiz!" I'm glad I'm seeing them. I liked them when I was a fifteen-year-old kid. I bought Cool for cats when I was fourteen, you know. So it it, it was like I'm seeing them in their motherland and I, I thought that was really cool and yeah it just kept on happening every time we went overseas
0: because it's interesting because quite a few australian bands and, and even in new zealand they they do the thing of actually relocating to london don't they they do the squatting thing in london for a while and um as if they're going to live there because during the 60s we had jermaine greer um Barry Humphreys and a guy called, is it Robert Hughes, who was a sort of art yeah. historian, the kind of famous uh, I, I, Australians who all came to the UK and, and have stayed here, I think, ever since virtually. So, I mean, was, was the band ever tempted to stay or were you just always touring and getting back
1: home? No, um, by then, you know, you know, the Easy Beats and, and bands like the Easy Beats and ACDC um, relocated for a while too, didn't they? But all these bands that come before us and... I think the the concept of air travel wasn't such a big deal by the time we started uh traveling in 1988. Of course, the Easy Beats. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Easy Beats. No. Okay, Easy Beats is uh, um George Young was the brother of um Angus Young and Malcolm Young from AC DC. And they yeah. and he produced all the A C D C records. So he was the brains behind A C D C but. When they had a song called "Friday on My Mind," which was top ten in the UK.
0: Yes. Okay, I've got it. Yeah.
1: Okay. So they went to they went to the UK by by um by ship. You know, I unthinkable now. You know, two mm. months uh, uh, traveling through the oceans. You know, uh, now I mean, by 1988, what, what were we doing? Flying from Sydney to Singapore, Singapore to Dubai, and then Dubai to to uh. Gatwick, you know, wasn't that much of a big deal. And we always really loved uh, being back at home. Um, and in any case, uh, in 1989, the following year, um, our guitar player um, and his partner, they were expecting a, a child. And so any thought of relocating was gone because of that anyway. Mm. So yes. you know, and and you know, I mean, relocating might have um, destroyed the band because you you just do hear stories of utter hardship, you know. And uh, we we had a lot of our friends in Australia, and we loved going back home. Um, we just loved Australia. is for a lot of people a really good place to live. I mean, you have to remember one thing that all three of us in the Hard-ons were were immigrants um lucky for example his parents were born in croatia but you know he was born here but he is the son of an immigrant but for our drummer kesh and myself we came to australia in in the mid 70s so when you come to australia in the mid 70s as a kid you fall in love with the place you don't particularly want to you know 10 years later go and live in London, especially after having witnessed, um, you know, what some of the squats are like and where some of the bands are staying and stuff like that, you just go, oh, I'm going to go back home and and live well and then come, get refreshed, write songs and then come back. And it wasn't such a big deal.
0: Yes, know? I know. So then, as, as uh, I mean, during that period, obviously it's kind of interesting because your, your lifespan is quite big in the first stage, isn't it? And <clears throat> by the sort of... I mean, because musically in, you know, as this kind of indie narrative goes, like 87, the Smiths breakup, then ecstasy comes along and then, you know, it kind of simplified. But, you know, there's this kind of new wave of younger people who want to hear the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and the Soup Dragons, these kind of bands. And and so a lot of those kind of bands that I really loved in the sort of 80s, especially from the early days, had sort of had enough. They'd done their two or three albums. They realised the music press and everybody was kind of looking for something which was a bit different and uh, the new sound. And so a lot of bands split up at that stage. And then you get from Seattle, you get the grunge scene that starts to appear. So you have to sort of, you navigate through that almost into the world that we call Britpop. So you were still releasing quite a lot of albums at that stage, weren't you?
1: Yeah, and there was a bit of um, uh, criticism from some of our um, uh, older fans saying that we were getting too heavy metal, but if you listen to those albums, they're quite schizophrenic. There's just out and out, pure 100% heavy metal to power pop the next moment, you know? So I think a lot of our records were quite diverse and schizophrenic, but Underneath all that is that driving bus or trademark guitar sound that we had, but um, I, I, I think I think our records are like a dog's breakfast, you know, a bit of this, bit of that. But somewhere we really thought we had lots of little things to say in the one record: heavy metal, power pop, pure pop, straight ahead punk straight ahead hardcore. That's what we want to say. And that's, you know, that song will be a hardcore song. That song will be a pop song. That song would be just a chest-bidding heavy metal song, for example. We So we had a lot of that. And to be honest, it, it probably turned off a lot of fans. Like a lot of uh, fans that really like the um, popier stuff said, we don't want to hear you play heavy metal. And we're like, well, this is what we want to do. In the end, all you can do is do what you really enjoy and enjoy the freedom that you get from not having uh your self-imposed restrictions that if you know what i mean
0: yes
1: but, well, I... you know but then there were all these bands like the pixies coming along and and you could tell that they were just about to become huge Soundgarden came along in 89 and you knew that they were going to be huge are getting more and more popular so we didn't know where we fit in and by the time 91 grunge happened we're like well, we don't know what's going on we don't know where we fit in but the only thing we can do is play the music that we like and uh you know so but i mean nothing lasts forever and we but we lasted 10 years in the original incarnation i thought that was quite good that was very good
0: actually <laughs> considering i mean when you were recording your you know the 80 uh, 93 album too far gone were you when you were sort of entering, sort of writing it and then recording it, did you feel like it was going to be the kind of the last album for, a, well, a while? Yes,
1: yes, yes. because um, uh, we we wanted to uh, play music that was um, quite, um, for a better word, abrasive and maybe even avant-garde in parts, maybe psychedelic. We want to play in, in, in bands like that, uh, Something happened in um, 1989. In 1989, we met uh, our tour manager in 1989, was a German guy named Gunther. He he told us his story. He said, I was into pop music. And uh, one day, somebody played me at their house, a a Joy Division record. And uh, I went and bought this Joy Division record. Uh, It was unknown pleasures. And uh y- y- you know, I-, I played this record and then I decided this is me. And then I decided to take the flowers in my room and throw them in the in the trash. And then I turned out all the lights and closed the blinds, so it was completely dark in my room. And and and, and-, and at that point I played the record again. And yeah, the music was so powerful and dark and it was so emotional. This this was me. And now here I am, I am promoting bands like Hot Shoot Cop, The Young Gods, you know, that is me, Leibach. I like heaviness, the darkness of the music around me like this. And, and now I want to play you something that really influenced me as a German. And then he played this cassette by a band called Can. <laughs> and so we started listening to this band, Can, and it was like, wow, yeah, where do I know that name Can from? And then I realized, that's Pete Shelley's favourite band, Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks. There's something there. There's mm-hmm. something there. It's not just Beach Boys and the Kinks and Small Faces and the Stooges and Velvet Underground. There's also Can. This is a really dark, incredibly inventive band here from the late 60s to early 70s. So we started listening. I, I went back home and got out all my Gang of Four and Public Image limited records and started listening to them again and I said how can I play this really muscular rhythmic music with deliberately adventurous and avant-garde leanings and in the end we said let's make this other album we made this album called Yummy which was ironically the most melodic pop record that was the stockpile of songs that were there at the time we purged that record and it became our biggest selling record on the major label then the next album was going to be this heavy, heavy, kind of like uh, adventurous, monstrous record that didn't have too many melodic moments, but a lot of abrasion, and that was too far gone. But by that time, the the few a couple of us in the hard ons were pretty disillusioned with um, what was happening with our band and our expectations from our fans, and uh, that's when things started changing. Um, metaphysically for the bands what i mean is left to our own devices we were able to go to a photo shoot wearing um you know shorts you know wearing shorts or um wearing um flip-flops or not having shaven not having washed our hair and kind of that was the image you know the band of a bunch of like a immigrant rebel without too many shiny bits and the record company didn't mind that. But then I think when Nirvana got big, everybody kind of started grabbing our ear and saying, you already have a call following; You could actually get bigger. Um, we want you to put out a record that's going to put you through the stratosphere. And we came and gave them Too Far Gone, and our record company absolutely lost it. <laughs> they said, we gave you the money for you to come up with this. And the record company actually, the, you know, the, one of the guys from the record company actually said, he actually more or less said, I don't have, I don't know what to do, I don't like this record. No one else is going to like the record, and it didn't sell well as well as any of the other records. But I have to tell you, the band was on on a, a popularity decline anyway. It, I don't think it had that much to do with that record. We could have put out a record that was very similar to the last one, Yummy, which was a big seller and very melodic. But I think we reached uh, a sales peak with Yummy in 1990. And in 93, a few years later, we were already on a sales and popularity decline because look who came after the Yummy record in 1990. Nirvana, the Pixies went through the roof, Grunge, Pearl Jam. We went to Europe in... um, 1993, and a guy who would always come to our shows in Germany said, I, 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 I want to buy a T-shirt of you, but I, I do not have any money. And I said, oh, I'll give you a discount. And he said, yeah, I, I went to a concert by this fantastic American band, Rage Against the Machine, and their T-shirts were, oh, yeah, the, the band was good, but they were really expensive T-shirts, and I had no money. And I said, take a shirt for half price. I don't care. And then when Rage Against the Machine, they're, they're, how much were the t-shirts? Oh, it was 30 30 mark. I go, Well, that's double what we're charging you. Well, I'm sorry, but um, but here's here's one at half price kind of thing. <laughs> but, but we realized that people's there was so we were competing with bands. Like, I'll give you an example of the parallel universe of underground music. In 1991 before the release of Never mind. We went on tour with Butthole Surface around Australia. Every show was sold out. So I'm talking 500 people in Adelaide, but then 2,000 people in Sydney, and 1,500 people in Melbourne. They were huge, huge shows. So, but when I would bump into my school friends um, from my high school a few years earlier, they'd say, "What you been doing?" I went on tour with the butthole surfers from the USA. They're from Texas. And they say, who? Never heard of them. And I'd go, yes, because there's a parallel universe of a real thriving underground music that you know nothing about. And hence, that's why it's called underground music. It doesn't mean that it's small. It's just not as big as Elton John and Billy Joel, but it's still quite big. How big? Well, 2,000 people in Sydney sold out. What? (laughs) Well, see, that was a parallel universe. But then, to me, when Nirvana got big, uh, all of a sudden, you didn't have that underground existing on its own. All of a sudden, there was a hole in the wall and all the people from the Elton John and Billy Joel side of the wall were looking going, did you hear that record? Never mind. Yeah. Isn't that good? Oh, yeah. What else is there? So... uh, does that make sense to you yes, um david yes yeah, so yeah, so we realized that um you're not com- you are no longer competing with um the descendants or the doughboys or um you know senseless things you're not you're not competing with snuff from the u k you're competing with pearl jam it's impossible, you know so we 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 were like um we are like, well, what can you do other than put, put out the record that you want to put out and go on tour? And then, but we knew that we, as soon as we came back from Europe, we broke up that year. We toured for the Too Fuck On record, came home and broke up in
0: 93. Yes. It's what it, is it, well, kind of interesting because there was one band which comes to mind when you were talking about that. Where, they were called the Primitives from Coventry. And they, they had a real moment. You know, they were really indie, you know, just on the John Peel show, playing, you know, art centres and little venues for 200 people probably around the country. Then they had a single called Crash, Crash, which went really... Kind of Fantastic song. Yeah, and then they kind of had that moment. And then it was this kind of thing, because I was talking to the guitarist, and he said, well, the thing is, when, when we were getting to that sort of next point or next couple of points down the line... You know, the music papers weren't even bothered about us. Our fans weren't even come to see us. And by the end you know, of the fifth or sixth album, it was a bit like, you know, we can, I mean, he didn't say the term get arrested, but it was a bit like, you know, it's like, does anybody care if we got this album? Does, you know, and it's a bit like, oh, no, actually no one cares. You're
1: competing with too many other bands.
0: Yeah, it's a bit, because yeah. I think that, you know, that that kind of rough, you know, the 16 to 18 year old is going to want that band. They don't want something from five years earlier. They want the next, they want to feel like they have discovered something, even if it's like something as. I don't know about you, but when I look at those clips that I see eight, 90s bands and you get, you know, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, I just can't believe how they all look the same. All the blokes, they've got the same look, they've got the same sound, they do the same thing, they're talking about their step, you know, problems at home with their stepfathers. And it's like, Jesus, you know, you had the same stylist. I mean, you almost, you know, it was like, this is this is the music for the next three years, kids, you know. And you're yeah. along. And, and it's just like the hair, fucking hell. I just can't believe how they all look so similar. It's like, yeah. yeah, this is this year. Oh, by the way, three years later, you'll, you know, you'll all have, you know, you'll all be junkies having problems. But by the way, your fans will not be bothered about you anymore because the next album yeah, like, wow who gives a shit you know you you appealed at that moment you know like most people say who've been in bands it's about timing isn't it you know it's the timing of everything and I've, I've met a few people who've done you know there was a guy called Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness and he said we were two years too early for punk we were punk but we were just everybody in the audience went on to be in punk bands you know they were the sex pistols the clash they were all there watching us going oh right this is interesting you know but he said by the time punk happened we were like 25 26 and we were like oh we're a bit fucking old for this now aren't we but you know all these kids are now sort of clearing up so it's about the timing you know so um yeah and uh, anyway at least you knew when to say goodbye you did your ziggy stardust didn't you
1: yeah i think I think we'd already had decided to break up um <clears throat> around the end of ninety two before we did the Too Far Gone album. And when we had the meeting with a record company guy, <clears throat> Steve, he and then he showed us told us that the record was gonna be a disaster. He said I don't know what to do. Then then I realized the um the lifespan of the band for now had to stop because um it, it it's we didn't fit <clears throat> we couldn't sustain stay sustain the the band you know we weren't happy playing in the band and 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 making the record company unhappy so rather than just look for another record company or whatever just just quit and start a new band where you're not obliged to um you're not obliged to put food on the table for anyone else just play the music that you like and if it means wallowing in obscurity so be it because At some point you had to go why why did i form a band with my friends and the answer was because was because you're musically intrigued to do so and um with too far gone i don't think everything works but a lot of our fans have come out and said they really like the record so it's i read a an interview with howard devoto from magazine do you know that fellow yeah Okay, he said that um, some people had um, accused magazine and Howard Devoto of pretentiousness. And his answer to that was, at some point, your ambition has to outpace your talent. And I thought that was a great thing. And I think at some point, Too Far Gone was the same for us. We had all these ambition, but but uh, we didn't know how to quite put that in a context of a band like the Hard Ons with the record company we had and the fan base we had and the expectations of the record company and the fan base. We only had uh, our ambition. We didn't even have expectation for that record. We just had ambition. And so somehow the ambition was the overriding thing. Not the execution, or the talent, or the expectation of the record company. The overriding thing was uh, ambition from us. And in reality, that's probably not enough to let you go and record another record. That's probably the last record in that case. And that's what happened to us.
0: Yeah. Does that make yes.
1: sense? David?
0: Yes, absolutely, it does. And I suppose when you were saying that, it's an amazing quote by Howard Devoto as well. Um, it does make me also go back to the person in my first love, which was David Bowie, thinking what it must have been like when he put out the Low album and what the re- reaction was by so many fans, but mostly by the people in the industry who were thinking, well, this is just not going to sell. And just going, I'll oh, well, forget the Christmas bonus. This is just a disaster. But then still being boggled how somebody could come out with like 10 albums in 10 years. And each one so different, and then bringing out low and listening to side two, thinking, "Christ, that must have been a hell of a shock," you know. And all the music journalists go, "Right, that's it." You know, they get their pens and go, "Right, we're going to write you off now. You're finished. I'm going to write that." You know, Charles Charles Murray write this horrendous in, in you know review in the NME, which he now obviously has to look at and think, oh, shit, I really got that wrong, didn't I? My whole career has been a bit fucked because of that review because he just said, that's it, David, you have finished me. You know, but it's just interesting, you know, like you said, you, you have to kind of go out with a big bang, but how artists navigate that, because obviously, you, you know, you, you would by then had sort of had enough, and some, you know, like there's only one David Bowie really, isn't there, you know, who goes, that's fine, I've got another record coming.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right, and David Bowie probably had something that other artists didn't have. On top of that talent, that on top of all that incredible talent was obviously his ability to absorb other people's music and go and understand why something works so well. He had that ability on top of his own songwriting ability, and then on, on top of that, he had this unshakable self-belief so that's why he was such a deadly artist and that's why he's one of the world's most important artists ever not just in rock music because of this unshakable self belief that what he was doing was good for his art so when you you know that 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 self belief and that talent and the ability to transpose other people's ideas and absorb them like a sponge and 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 put it out in such a unique way where, like, you know, I had a friend say to me, you know that song, We Can Be Heroes? Yeah, you know what that is. That's just kraut rock. And I looked at him I said, are you fucking mad? <laughs> he said, yeah, it just sounds like noise or something. I go, are, again, are you crazy? Have, can you hear yourself? Have you heard that song? I go, it's, it's genius. You know, it's like anyone who, who can actually uh, doubt Bowie nowadays would be considered insane i mean it's it's just far too good the guy was 20 years ahead of his time wasn't he
0: yes well he really I suppose, yeah i mean it, yes i mean it's kind of boggling he's kind of even he's kind of i mean i suppose i even find his 80s period and you know i think tim Mishim was all right but i think that 80s period you know i still think it's kind of fascinating watching an artist who obviously would hold his hands up and say yeah i i sort of was getting lost myself but then you know we you know who doesn't get lost and thank god you know i mean and considering what else he did before and after you know you you know you think give the guy a break you know okay it wasn't great but
1: then you're not going to be able to get it yeah, might that's exactly run. right that's you know. exactly right now when he put out when he put out let's dance album uh i love that record i loved all the hits off it my friends have told me that you know um modern modern love Let's Dance, China Girl, did Tooth throwaway and Trashy and stuff like that. And I said, can I tell you something? He wrote Hunky Dory, so he doesn't have to prove anything to you, does he? <laughs> anyway, I love that record. I love yes. that record. Yeah. Well, I
0: think, I so, think my, my sort of thing with Bowie on that period is that, let's dance I think he was still kind of ahead of the game when he did his next two albums tonight and never let me down I think that's the point where I think for once in his life this is my theory was that he was kind of following what was happening for once rather than going because when when let's dance come out when he wrote that when he recorded it you know it was still kind of ahead of what was going to come out with the sort of that 80s production sound exactly. you know mtv you know you know he was yeah. doing that in 81 82 you know he yeah. didn't really have the master plan that serious the serious moonlight tour was going to be this kind of massive stadium yeah. event you know and and so you think no i think you know i'll give him credit i think that was a good album i think the next two albums are where you can get an artist who looks like they're not quite sure and they're sort of going, right, I'll get, I'll get this producer. I'll get this sound. I think this is what the charts wants. He, you know, as he says, not in a nasty way, but it's a bit nasty. He said he was sharing the same audience as Phil Collins and he realised that something was yeah. wrong.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think he was, it, it felt like he was saying to himself, you know what, I'll give that a go. And, you know, give him credit. I mean, if you can come up with Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, low and and scary monsters and all that stuff i say give him a go you know okay two albums that sound like he's treading water a little bit and um maybe he he there's not not that incredible assuredness uh that's okay because rewind and it is low you know just gonna listen to the low I and mean, it's like okay he's a genius he's allowed two albums that sound Little bit more stagnant than the others, I think. Yeah. You know?
0: And I mean, and when you listen to ten minutes of station to station, you just think yeah. that's a hell of a song. So look, then what happens to you? And then the next little bit of the journey, I say that, because Christ, that's only about thirty, no, twenty years ago now, isn't it? Oh my god. Yeah, um,
1: um what happened yeah, what happened was um uh, me and Blackie, the guitar player, formed a band called Nunchaka Superfly. And that's like a really um uh verging on avant-garde. Um, almost experimental psychedelic rock bands, and some songs sound like Hawkwind, some songs sound like Can, some songs sound like I don't know, just prog rock, progressive rock. Um, some of it sounds like brutal hard punk rock. Uh, we did that band to not much audience interest for a long time. We're still doing it. We've got a double album that just came out, and we're really happy and proud of that record. But um, in 19. 19- 98 uh we did a new bunch of recordings with ed cooper from the saints and released a couple of little cd singles and whatnot and in 1999 one of the songs that we recorded with um ed cooper was put on a a best of album and released in europe and we went to europe and toured in uh uh, 99 uh, with the original lineup so we kind of went back into full-time band mode in 1998, uh, so that was a, you know, uh, a, a stopping of five years there, and and then um, in uh, 2000 and 2001, we played with uh, we put out a record called This Terrible Place, which was really poorly received, and and to be fair, it was a really directionless, muddy affair that kind of some really great songs, but no theme, nothing tying it together. Just, you know, all of us writing songs separately going, yeah, let's play them, put out an album and no focus at all. And, um, you know, if you dig through, you'll find some really good songs there, but we toured Europe with, for that album. And, um, our drummer Kesh started losing interest at that point because he realized how hard it was being in a band again. It wasn't like, the heyday of 88 and 89 when you know we just seemed to be falling into luck the whole time and 2000 2000 and 2001 seemed a lot harder he quit the band and in 2002 we put out a we came back and put out a new album with a different lineup with a different drummer and um in 2014 uh drummer cash came back but just as purely as Lee Singer and we went around Australia and um, Japan too, actually, uh, as as a four-piece playing with a different drummer, but with our original drummer, who was our lead singer, just staying on lead vocals. And we've been like that since then. So since 2014, we've had this four-piece lineup.
0: Yes. So are you able to now sort of balance your you know your life the work the work life balance of sort of home work and the band you know have you managed to as a band get that kind of equation sorted out um
1: well we we if we wanted to um actually drop everything and make the band uh full time i think it would have been a real struggle to put food on the table because it would have meant that we would have had to play all the time you know like when you talk to you know that american band the melvins yes yes they we played with them in 89 and we've been friends since and their way of operating is to put out an album every year go on tour around Australia, uh, around america and europe constantly play and you know america being what it is and europe being what it is if you play in um, amsterdam and then it's not too much of a stretch to drive to brussels and play the next day which is a different country and from Brussels, it's not too much of a stretch to go to maybe, I don't know, Aachen or Cologne or somewhere in the north of Germany. It's not too difficult to go from one really distinctly different audience and city to another. They could actually make it work. But, and if in America, you would have to play Minneapolis and play Chicago, uh, Philadelphia. Cincinnati, all those places could be played one after another without too much bother. If you have a van and you have someone driving you, it's not the case for an Australian band. You, you would have to play Sydney and then go to Brisbane, which is driving 11 hours. Or if you went from Sydney to Melbourne, 10 hours drive. Sydney to Adelaide, you'd have to go to Melbourne first. And from Melbourne to Adelaide would be eight and a half hours. Going to Perth would be three days drive. So you have to fly everywhere. So there's huge costs involved. You can't play for a band of the size of the Hardons. We can't play in all those tiny little towns and villages and, and mini cities in between the major five major cities on the mainland. There are no places to play. So people are writing to me saying, why have you not played Wagga Wagga? Why have you not played Rockingham? Uh, why have you not played Darwin, Alice Springs? And we say, because... We had There is no interest in the band. It's like, I want to come and my, my mate Brad wants to come and his <laughs> sister wants to come. Okay, that's not enough. I'm sorry, that's not enough. We need to have a few hundred people there. And quite clearly, there aren't a few hundred people. But when a promoter, for example, a, a promoter in Cairns would say, can you come to Cairns? Uh, I think I can drum up enough business and make it successful. We go, yes, we'll go. And then there's a couple of hundred people. It's successful and we come home. But we've only played Cairns twice in our entire career. That's how difficult it is. And Cairns is a pretty big tourist hub, you know. So it's not easy. So what we would have to do to make this balance work for us to become full-time musicians would be to travel all around America, all around Europe constantly to get income into the band so we can pay the rent and things like that. But the fact is, between the four of us, there are 10 Uh, offspring, you know, I have two a drummer has four our guitar player has one uh, boy who's a fully grown adult now, but uh, he could become a grandfather at any moment and our lead singer has three children, so we can't just drop everything and, and go, you take the kids to school, I'm going to be in America for the next two months or three months we just can't do that, so It's impossible to find that balance. But one thing that has made us do is made us treat the band as kind of like a a hobby that pays for itself. So if we go to Melbourne, the the show has enough money generated to pay for the airfares and the hotels. So it's it's a self-sustained unit. But beyond that, there is no rent or extra money so we can go and buy anything else or anything like that. But that forced all the band members to go and get jobs, and we all have regular jobs. So when the pandemic happened, at least we had our uh, original jobs. There was no music to play because that was out of the question, but uh, we were still able to um, go to our regular jobs. So that was so, in a way, that's been okay.
0: Yes. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting because most bands I know interview have the same, exactly the same kind of lifestyle where they, it's a bit like that. there's a film in the 80s called Flashdance where she was a welder by day and a dancer by right night. and um, yeah most bands are like yeah actually I'm just going to have a proper job but I'll really give it everything in the evenings and at weekends and when we have holiday we could do some dates and do a tour but I mean it just isn't it just isn't feasible and actually those people seem happier and are producing quite a lot of stuff than people who've felt a bit jaded by the experience and feel a bit sort of bitter about the whole thing. So does that mean that you've got material and projects coming out hopefully sometime uh, soon? Yes.
1: Uh, yeah. The Nunchucker Superfly, the band for me and Blackie have a double LP vinyl out, but the Hard Ons are also going in the studio in May to record a new album as well.
0: Right. So did the pandemic yeah. experience, did you sit at home and on Zoom, well not Zoom, but um, did you, um, yes, think, oh, look, we've got some of this time. Shall we just, you know, swap files and put material together?
1: Yeah, so what we did was, uh, in Australia, the, the pandemic situation was far, far better than almost every other place on, on the planet. So, for example, <laughs> uh, unlike Britain, we have zero, zero cases right now. We have 15 people in New South Wales in hotel quarantine, um, but they the COVID nineteen was contracted overseas, but the locally acquired um, cases uh, where I live, n- no zero for the last forty five days. So that's pretty good. You see, that's very in direct contrast to what is happening in in places like Paris or or I'm sure the UK. You know,
0: yeah.
1: So we we've. So we've been lucky to actually roam around and go to our regular studio place to to uh, um, um, knock out songs together. And also, we've been lucky enough to play um, socially uh, distanced shows where a venue that holds um, three hundred people would would have tables and chairs and only uh 80 people will be allowed in and we were able to perform in front of them they were not allowed to stand up during the concert but and they had to be seated but we played and 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 none of those shows ever were responsible for any spread of um COVID 19 or anything like that so it's been quite good we yeah. have had uh the chance to play live concerts
0: wow don't tell anybody in the uk they're going the musicians are going a bit mental actually Yeah, well, we're
1: going to Adelaide. We're going to Adelaide in a month to play, you know. So, and the legal capacity that they have for this venue is 150 people. So that's pretty good, 150 people. So that's half, because normally that place would hold 300. have Cut the room to 150, and they're charging people a little bit more, and everyone's happy to pay that extra.
0: Oh, I think they have. Everyone's desperate. So... With the material that you're recording in May, is that material that you wrote during the last year or is that stuff that you've had sort of in the, in the archives?
1: No, it's all stuff that we've, we've written in the last year. Brilliant. So, yeah, it's all the stuff that came out during COVID. Yeah. My
0: God. So as an artist, yeah. how, did, you know, how does that sort of come into the work or did it not come into the work at all?
1: No, it didn't. The COVID-19 situation didn't come into the work at all. It's... Um, and that's one of the uh, uh, privileged things about um, being able to go into a studio with your, your, your bandmates and just play. All of a sudden, you do really forget that outside world is really messed up and there are people dying. You do forget because you're, you're so worried about that distance between the kick drum and the snare drum. <laughs> Where is that bass going to sit? And it's just that, Ray, you're coming into early there why don't you slide the note in a little bit faster? It'll give that urgency. Right. Let's try that again. Again, I don't like that. I don't like that chorus. It's too cliche. Can we play the verse again but this time in another key and double it? Let's double it. So what, this is when you're doing that, you just do not think anything other than what's the, what the task at hand is. So we were able to knock some really good songs together. Uh, completely distance from the COVID nineteen thing in the world, and we don't want to write songs about COVID nineteen. We don't want to write songs <laughs> that feel like it's a COVID nineteen record or anything like that.
0: Right. Oh, this is exciting. Have you done the artwork for it?
1: No, no. But um, I have um, the bare bones of it. That's On all. Your yeah. So look. Well, we haven't even recorded the album, so I'm going to. What I normally do is. When when we're recording, I take a bit of paper and doodle things. And then I I take the best bits and they always end up uh, record uh, covers and stuff.
0: Excellent. So, look, last question then. If you could have um, said something to your your 18-year-old self or 16-year-old self, you know, some bit of wise wisdom that you've learned over the last decades, um, what what would your sort of top thing be? You know, if you could just say, yeah, that was something that I've definitely learned you know cuz we we change slightly as people but we're basically the same but there's things that you kind of think god I would have just yes I've learned that little number or I would do this or I wouldn't do that yeah
1: i i would say i would say treat people a bit better treat other human beings a little bit better that's what i would say yes um you know th- that that would be the biggest um regrets in my life for example uh in 1988 we stayed you know, our record company, Vinyl Solution, let us stay at a an apartment in uh, in uh, Holland Park in London, uh, a really nice apartment. And us being like uh, young men in the early 20s and whatnot, probably didn't look after the um, apartment very well. We made a mess, and and uh, we probably should have taken care to clean the apartment. And because the person who the apartment belonged to uh, his name was Seth. He used to have a record company called What What Goes On. He gave us that apartment out of the goodness of his heart. He said, I'm gonna be in New York, you guys have the apartment for a month. And we he told Final Solution, our record company, that the Hard-ons really made a mess of the place. You know, we really should have cleaned up. And but at the time, we were all looking at each other going, Who's gonna clean that up? Who's gonna fix that door? Who who Broke the a handle, you know. In the end, none of us, we were all responsible. And there was no, no one answerable. No one was answerable. So it's one of the things that I have to do because now Seth, out of all, after all these years, has requested my Facebook friendship because I made this really throwaway thing to a mutual friend. I feel terrible about what I did as a young kid in 1988 to Seth's apartment. And they said, I don't think Seth cares, but he'd probably like to hear from you directly. And then all of a sudden I get this message from Seth. I need, you know, friendship requests, but I haven't had the gumption to go on. I'm too kind of scared to say what I want to say. Um, I shouldn't be, but it's a real regret in my life, you know, you know it, just things like that. Uh, another time we stayed we stayed with a a, a friend in um in America. Um, and one of the guys that was traveling with us stole a book from him. And I didn't find out until we left the country and we were sitting around, and one of the other guys in the band said, "Hey, I've just found out that uh, such and such that was traveling with us stole a book." And I was so distraught by it that I didn't know what to do, and uh, it was a book about tattoos, you see. i it took me it took me about three years to write to him and apologize in In that time, he wrote back and said, "This is before email, you see?
0: Yeah.
1: He wrote back and said. You don't really need to apologize, but I'm glad I know which one of the bands that stayed there stole it. And I, and I said, I'm offering to um, replace anything and, and I'm ashamed that it took me three years to uh, write to you. And he said, why did it take you so long? And I said, because life got in the way and I put this didn't put priori- priority on it. Yeah. I let it slip my mind. And then I thought about it, I was like, how could I let this slip my mind? But I did, you know? And so um, uh, hes we're still friends. We're still really good friends. And, and in the end, the only thing you could do is be honest and be true to yourself. But I guess there are things that I really regret about, I mean, I really should have done something about it earlier. Um you know, but yeah, yeah, I would, I would say, if I could tell my 18-year-old self, I would say, um, treat other people better. You know, I'll give you another example. Um, there was a band um, um, called Fire Party, who, um, who were, uh, they were on Discord Records. You know, Ian Mackay from Discord. Um, yeah. Minor Fritter. He, they were. So they, they were living in DC, Washington DC. And when we were there in, in, in the States, we'd already played with them in, in, in London and we became friends. And when we were in DC, they said, we can, You guys can stay at our house. So two of us stayed at one woman's house. The other two stayed at, uh, the other three stayed at, because uh, our yeah, other two, because our tour manager, uh, Tim Pittman, who was our manager, said to us that was four of us, um, you know, can stay with the drummer and you know, and she was really nice, and so was a bass player, she was really nice. We stayed with them. And um, our guitar player Blackie, he um he uh had to go back home because his father fell ill. So the gig was con- uh, the concert was cancelled, and we were playing with Fire Party, the band that put us up. And instead of going to that concert when they were playing by themselves without us and enjoying their company and cheering them on, we were so I think we it was a combination of being deflated and distraught and worried about our guitar player's father. For whatever reason, we all decided to get in a taxi and go and see a band called the Dickies. We didn't turn up and and then I thought about it and it was it was an appalling um lack of um you know solidarity with the people that was putting us up, you know. So I was like, Oh, how can we our thought back a few years later, and I said, instead of going to the the band to watch the support band because I was putting us up, we went out and watched another band. And I said, why did we do that? And I just couldn't work out how immoral we could be and how disgustingly um, uncharitable to the people that were being nice to us. So yeah, if I could take that back, I would. You know, yes. that's what I would say to my eighteen-year-old. Does it? Yeah. It's, yes. It's,
0: no. I mean that that story is is kind of like yeah. I mean,
1: terribly shameful.
0: It is you know, mm-hmm. I, but that kind of moment where you just feel so I suppose selfish and you just say this is what I want to do and I don't care and you just do it. But I and I, I think I, I, I have a huge amount of guilt. So things like that, I do sort of. I probably don't do a, do those sort of things a lot. But when I have done them, I do wake up the next day thinking, God, that was such a shitty thing to have done. You know. Yeah. And
1: and and. And I just I just hope that I became a better person, you know? Yes. I, know. I, I think I have. Because if there's self-reflection about bad things that you've done and you wish that you could take them back, then then yeah, then then that self-reflection does say, well, maybe you have become a better person. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well I would've I would have thought so because um yeah because I'm sure some people wouldn't have even given it, you know, wouldn't remember that decades later but when you do remember things like that decades later you probably you kind of yeah you wouldn't let that happen again would you really let's face it so no
1: and you know then there's other things like when the first time we went to germany uh we had a tour manager um his name was michael and um his father was uh his father was in the military in the nazi party you know And so we were merciless with him, making you know constantly making Hitler jokes and that kind of stuff. And then it was only only a couple of years later, um, when somebody, a German friend, said, "This is such a sensitive topic. You have to have empathy with people who have generations of families." that we're in the Nazi party. You have to have empathy with them. There is so much insane amount of layered issues that we have to deal with as a nation that it doesn't help when tourists from Australia come and make very frivolous and cruel jokes. And then it just hit me. Uh, It just really hit me. And then I, I think about... The, the Hitler jokes that I told that bloke Michael, I, I think, oh, God, it's, you know, I, I you know, so, but you, you can't, you can't take them back, but I guess you can just try and be a better person, couldn't you?
0: Yes, no, but it's, you know, as you said just there, you know, at least you've had self-reflection thinking, crikey, you, you know. Yeah, it's good. It's good to both look back and and sort of look at the positive things. But also, I think, also to sort of cringe and sort of not go back with the rose-tinted sunglasses to the past, whether it was kind of like some, you know, people have their glory decade or glory years. And I think, well, it was all right. But Mm. even so, I mean, people talk about the 80s now a bit. And I think, yeah, but we sat around a moment, you know, this is from the UK. We moaned a lot. We were just all feeling fed up and depressed and moaned. You know, we weren't having a great time. I mean, musically, it was brilliant. All those, you know, p- p- posts that people put up now of all those gigs that, you know, we could have gone to or we did go to, you think, God, that was amazing. You could have gone three gigs for 2 pounds fifteen. they were all brilliant bands. But, you know, yeah. we didn't particularly appreciate it at the time. But, you know, you look back and you think, oh, yeah. And, and stuff like, you know, st- stuff you said or things that you thought were really funny, you know, luckily, you know, you just think, God, I would never say that, you know, that's why we've got this kind of, I suppose, there's a bit of a culture war going on now, isn't there, with this kind of the woke thing that's happening, and people thinking, oh, you can't say anything, because everyone's so sensitive, and you And well, yeah, but you look at some of the comedy, or so-called comedy in the 70s in the UK, I mean, it was so, there was so much kind of racism, and sexism, and xenophobia and stuff like that it's it's like actually it wasn't i mean i didn't think most i didn't think it was funny at the time but now you look at it and you just cringe you think god how did they get you know but there's this culture you for know, me as, yeah you, yeah a yeah. culture war that's kind of slightly happened which is for
1: like, yeah for me when when um that woke culture for me what what they're saying is if somebody says would you please stop because it's hurting my feelings? Then it's probably time to now listen to them. That's that's what it is, you know? Yeah. And uh, before we'd go, oh, why don't you just, you're you're being a bit sensitive, aren't you? Don't you have a sense of humour? It's like, yes, it's offensive, but but now I think everyone's kind of gone, listen, this person is not in a privileged position like you are because maybe they're not male, maybe they're not white, maybe whatever, you know? But they're saying, can you please stop? It's hurting my feelings. And your response should be, yes, what have I said that was offensive, please tell me, and take action accordingly. That's all woke culture is for me. I don't have a problem with that. I think that's sensible, don't you? Yeah. Well, Maybe well, the- and people are like, you know, oh, they're cancelling this, cancelling that. It's like, well, things change all the time. It doesn't mean it's bad. Things, things are changing. Maybe we're on the... In the middle of a change, and you know, sometimes you know, people went from bell bottoms to straight legs, you know, everything changes. Sometimes ideology changes, sometimes metaphysics change. You know, what about that band, The Descendants? Have you heard of The Descendants, David? <laughs> David, can you hear me?
0: Yes, yeah, I'm just thinking Descendants, I'm not sure.
1: Okay, they had a uh, The Descendants had a song called Um, um. Well the drummer bill was in a band called Black Flag, you know, Black Flag. Yes. Oh okay. yeah, right. I've got you, yeah. So the descendants in nineteen seventy-nine, um, they wrote a song called I'm Not a Loser. That's one of the best songs. And in the song, it, it it's got these lyrics, you know. No way, you fucking gay. Um, you you know, you you stupid homo. Um it's like calling people losers and then Oh, um, fucking gay. Um, so that was 1979, and the record came out. And you know, I saw them in 2011, all those years after. And they're my friends, and they I knew they had to play that song because it's their um one of their most famous songs. And I thought, wonder what they're going to do with the lyrics. It's 2011, all those years later, and they um they sang no way. And then they left the word gay and used stupid, stupid asshole instead of homo. So they changed it. Now that wasn't canceling anything. That wasn't, that wasn't cancel culture. What that was, was a band saying when we were stupid little kids, we wrote these horrible lyrics, but we want to update that by getting rid of those words. And I thought that was really good because, 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 those horrible lyrics don't take away from the fact that it's an incredible song, but how do you keep the song, but updated for the modern world? So you don't hurt people's feelings who are gay, you know? So that's what they did. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And I never told them that, but I thought that was really great. And, and that's what they did. And that, you know, there, there'll be a few people who, there aren't that many people, but there would be people who'd go, well, they cancelled it. No, they haven't. They just updated it and things change. Things change all the time. That's what happens.
0: This is true. This is true. Look,
1: better, no, know.
0: No. look, I better let you get on, actually. It's, um, it's yeah, been... we just have dinner, so I better get going. <laughs> okay, look, thank, thank you ever so much. I'll keep in touch and I'll post you the link if you want and then you can always post it somewhere.
1: Thank you so much. Okay, well, look, so have much. a lovely
0: evening. Yeah. Have a lovely day. All Take the best
1: care. Of you. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: And that was me in conversation with Ray from The Hard Ons. I know, I didn't realise that conversation went on for so long. Anyway, um, if, you, if you're still with it, well done. If you're not, I don't know. Anyway, look, what can I say? This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. Again, massive thanks to Ray. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. We do not need negativity here. Oh, no. And also, I've been doing these interviews for years. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Again, C86 Show. If you're really into indie pop, especially indie pop from the um, 80s, fill your boots. Also, David Bowie. I've got a lot of David Bowie-related interviews. None from David Bowie himself. But um, anyway, have a look. You'll enjoy it.
1: Have a good night. Thank you. And that's it. Bye.